too busy to send me an email, go to chicagohistorypod.com, and in the lower right is a little microphone. Click on it, and you can leave me a voice message. Technology! He was an immigrant, a teacher, and a doctor, one who spoke out against newspapers who took money from unscrupulous snake oil makers, worked to help create medicine that would be easier for kids to swallow, and most importantly, revolutionized the way blood is stored right here in Chicago. In doing so, he saved countless millions of lives, and yet many do not know his name. This is the story of Dr. Bernard Fantis, creator of the Blood Bank. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. Once again, a listener suggested this topic. Thanks to Sarah Lamantia for setting me down the research path for this episode. I learned much. Imagine a time when if a patient at a hospital needed blood, the only way to help that person was to quickly find someone with the same blood type who could donate blood directly to the person who needed it. For someone with a rare blood type, it would often mean their chances of receiving the life-saving blood they needed were slim, and their chances of survival would be bleak. Bonkers, right? One man named Bernard Fantis thought so as well. Bernard Fantis was born September 1st, 1874 in Budapest, Hungary. From an early age, he was interested in becoming a doctor and a researcher, and even completed his pre-medicine studies at the Real Gymnasium in Vienna before the age of 15. In 1889, when Bernard was 15, he and his parents immigrated to Michigan, where Fantis apprenticed at a drugstore. The Fantis family eventually moved to Chicago, where in 1899, Fantis received his Doctor of Medicine degree, one of 120 graduates to do so at that commencement, from the College of Physicians and Surgeons, now part of the University of Illinois College of Medicine. The commencement event was held at the Central Music Hall. Here's a little background on Central Music Hall, which was on the southeast corner of State and Randolph Streets. It was designed by German-born architect Dankmar Adler, who would go on to design many buildings on his own, and a few with Louis Sullivan, including the Auditorium Building. The Central Music Hall was only in existence for 21 years, starting in 1879 until its demolition in late 1900, early 1901, in order for the Marshall Field and Company store, now Macy's, to be built. After graduation, Bernard Fantis traveled overseas to Germany to study pharmacology in Strasbourg and Berlin before returning to the States and settling at the University of Illinois College of Medicine in Chicago. As focused as he was on teaching and his medical pursuits, Bernard Fantis did find time to get married in 1904 to a woman named Emily Sen, a nurse he met at Cook County Hospital, and settled in a home at what is now 1014 North Marshfield Avenue in Chicago. They later adopted a daughter, Ruth. 
In November 19th, 1911, Chicago Tribune article detailed an event at which Fantist accused various Chicago newspapers of complicity in killing infants through cures that were actually nostrum frauds. I had to look it up. Nostrum refers to a medicine of secret composition recommended by its preparer, but usually without scientific proof of its effectiveness, basically snake oil. Fantas took numerous newspapers to task for accepting money to advertise these cures, I'm using finger quotes, that he was able to debunk in front of a gathering of Chicago Medical Society at a public library. Fantas explained the worthlessness of the products and condemned some headache cures, as they were called, as actually creating a drug dependency. He also went as far as to read a list of names of babies who had not woken up after ingesting a syrup referred to as a soother. Of course, the Tribune, while reporting on this, made sure to point out that they and the Post were two local newspapers that did not accept advertisement from, quote, makers of these fraudulent remedies, end quote. The worst of the bunch was The Examiner, a paper that in just 1910 accepted $120,000 in ad money from the Nostrum frauds. Name for a band that is uh, nearly 3.3 million dollars in today's money. After detailing a few products and explaining how little value each actually had as a cure, Fantas spoke of the soothing syrups parents were giving to fussy babies, explaining most owed their efficiency to the opium they contained. Quote, many babies lie in graves as a result of morphine poisoning from swallowing soothing syrups, said Fantas. Fantas read the names of eight babies who died after being given Coughs baby friend and four deaths due to ingestion of Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup. Another problem of that time was the prevalence of tuberculosis in America, which, by the early 1900s, had killed one in seven of all people that had ever lived. One in seven of all that had ever lived. I had to read it three times to make sure that I had it right. In addition to extreme fatigue, TB victims suffered from hacking, bloody coughs, as well as debilitating pain in their lungs. According to Fantis, the crusade against tuberculosis got people worked up into thinking that they had the disease. Quote, they go to a doctor who, after careful diagnosis, tells them they are all right, but they don't believe their physician. They think he is trying to keep it from them. End quote. As for the nostrum fraud and their tuberculosis medications, Fantis went on to say, quote, these fakers use alcohol in their dope because it brings temporary relief. For the moment, it makes the afflicted forget. Morphine stops a cough, but a cough has a purpose. It is to free the bronchial tubes from poison. After the relief, which follows taking a morphine cough remedy, the cough is worse. The better the doctor, the less morphine he uses. 
Keep in mind, this was five years after the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 prohibited the sale of misbranded or adulterated food and drugs in interstate commerce. 1906 was also the year the nation's first consumer protection agency, the Food and Drug Administration, or the FDA, was formed. While in his role as professor of pharmacology and therapeutics, Fantis conducted research in ways to make children's medication easier to administer and more enjoyable, which resulted in his 1915 book, Candy Medication. In it, Fantis writes, It is the author's hope that this booklet may be instrumental in robbing childhood of one of its terrors, namely nasty medicine, that it may lessen the difficulties experienced by nurse and mother in giving medicament to the sick child and help to make the doctor more popular with the little ones, end quote. Fantis outlines ways pharmacists can easily and inexpensively create these candy medicines on their own so parents can avoid trying to get their kids to take icky-tasting medicine from a spoon. Flashbacks to my childhood. He also writes, quote, Unfortunately, however, many a child has had its palate offended by liquid medicines to such a degree that it abhors spoon medicine of any kind and will struggle even against the most palatable. When one witnesses the struggling of an average child against the average medicine, one cannot but wonder whether at times the struggle does not do more harm than the medicine can do good, and wish that we had other means of administering medicines to the little ones. As all children love candy, this would seem the form most desirable for them. Of course, Fantis did get some pushback to this idea of candy medication along the way. According to an October 28, 1910 article in the El Paso Times in Texas, at a meeting of the International Medical Association, a paper about the subject of candy coating medicine written by Fantis was read to the crowd. One less than supportive doctor, he was referred to as witty, was quoted as saying, quote, what I need in my section of the country is something that tastes nasty and hurts, or my people will think they are not being doctored, end quote. Continuing his studies, he received a Master of Science degree at the University of Michigan in 1917. Let's talk about blood, shall we? According to the American Red Cross website, the first recorded successful blood transfusion occurred in England in 1665 when physician Richard Lower kept dogs alive by transfusing blood from other dogs. In 1667, Jean-Baptiste Denis in France and Edmund King and Richard Lower in England separately reported successful blood transfusions to humans from sheep. It wasn't until 1901 that Austrian physician Karl Landsteiner discovered the first human blood groups, A, B, A, B, and O. Just a few short years later, the process of blood typing and cross-matching was introduced. In 1914, long-term anticoagulants were developed, allowing longer preservation of blood. 
Person-to-person blood transfusion was in use in World War I and by the 1930s. Advances in blood preservation allowed for blood to be kept viable outside the body for a few hours. Of course, in the event of a mass casualty, medical resources could be quickly overwhelmed. According to a 2005 exhibit on Fantis by the University of Chicago Special Collections Research Center, which holds the Fantis archive, quote, the process of donating blood was so traumatic and potentially dangerous that often donors could not be found. In his 2005 article in the Chicago Tribune, William Mullen writes that in 1936, after Fantis saved a woman's life in Cook County Hospital, her appreciative husband asked if there was anything he could do for Fantis as a show of gratitude. As Adele Goldstein, Fantis's niece, recalled, quote, Uncle Bernard's twinkly eyes lit up when the woman's husband made the offer. For years, he had been trying to get money to put together his idea of refrigerating and storing blood at the hospital. According to Goldstein, quote, The grateful husband's face turned white when Uncle Bernard said he needed $500. The man asked Fantis, Why don't you ask for something possible? But he went away and came back triumphant. He went to 10 wealthy men and got each to pledge $50 to my uncle's plan, end quote. Fantis was ready to establish a blood preservation laboratory at Cook County Hospital, only to change the name before opening day, March 15, 1937, to Cook County Hospital Blood Bank. I saw a few references to it being his daughter Ruth as the one who suggested the name change, but couldn't find a proper source. Before Fantis developed his blood bank, Cook County Hospital physicians did approximately 40 transfusions a month. Within the first three months, the number of transfusions had jumped to 300. One year later, that number more than doubled to 700 a month. The concept of a blood bank was quickly adopted worldwide. Sadly, Fantis didn't get to see the meaningful influence of his efforts. He suffered a heart attack in 1939 and passed away at his home on Taylor Street in Oak Park the following April 14, 1940, at the age of 66. By 1941, a community-based blood center opened in San Francisco. Also in 1941, the Red Cross started the National Blood Donor Service to collect blood for the U.S. military. By 1945, the Red Cross ended its World War II blood program for the military after collecting more than 13 million pints. In 1947, the American Association of Blood Banks was established. As if all this wasn't enough, according to a 2004 article written by Jennifer Carnig in the University of Chicago Chronicle, Bernard Fantis also studied hay fever, and in an unsuccessful effort to lessen the discomfort of Chicago allergy sufferers, had city workers attempt to remove the ragweed in the area. In 1968, Flintstones chewable vitamins were introduced. Now, if you go to any drugstore, you can find a variety of medicine in sweet form and even in gummy form, vitamins, probiotics, etc., Fantis way ahead of his time. According to the American Red Cross Blood Services website, every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs blood, 
and on average, 4.5 million Americans will need a blood transfusion each year. One donation can essentially save up to three lives. A single car accident victim can require as many as 100 units of blood. Blood and platelets cannot be manufactured. They can only come from volunteer donors. Only 37% of the U.S. population is eligible to donate blood, and yet less than 10% of those do annually. Blood and blood products like platelets are also crucial in the treatment of childhood cancers and severe burns. Red cells are stored in refrigerators at 6 degrees Celsius for up to 42 days. Platelets are stored at room temperature in agitators for up to 5 days. Plasma is frozen and stored in freezers for up to one year. A dozen tests are performed on blood donated, and if anything is not up to snuff, the blood is rejected. You can also donate blood for yourself that can be stored a few weeks before a surgery. Listener and friend Dennis K. has donated an impressive 116 pints of whole blood since 1994. Yes, he keeps track. And, quoting Dennis, quote, one pint of plasma since having COVID antibodies with more to come, end quote. And yes, I donate double red blood cells as often as I can. What, you think I only sit and make podcasts? If this all sounds like a push to get you to consider donating blood, it is. If you have ever known someone in desperate need of a transfusion or can imagine the horror of not enough blood on hand when a loved one needs it, consider donating. I'll have links in the show notes. In 2015, in recognition of his contributions to the science of healthcare, Dr. Bernard Fantas was added to the wall of notable residents of Oak Park, a suburb just west of Chicago city limits, at the Oak Park Village Hall, joining the ranks of Ernest Hemingway, Frank Lloyd Wright, Betty White, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and McDonald's founder Ray Kroc. Dr. Bernard Fantas's niece, Muriel Fantas Fulton, said of her uncle, quote, He had this deep conviction that a scientist was to take no credit for his successful work. He put all his time, attention, and interest in helping needy people. Can you imagine the millions and millions of people who are walking this earth today who would not be here if it weren't for the blood bank? Thank you for listening to today's episode about Dr. Bernard Fantas and the Blood Bank. If you've enjoyed this episode or previous ones, I'd sure appreciate you leaving a review. As always, I'd love to hear from you if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have a different topic you think might be a good fit for a future episode of the Chicago History Podcast. I can be reached by email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. I'll have pictures and news clippings related to the story on Instagram and on Facebook. Give us a follow and check it out. Thanks, as always, to John K. Schneider for creating the Chicago History Podcast logo and the art used on the social media pages. He can be found at Angel Eyes Art JKS on Instagram 
or via email at angeleyesartjks at gmail.com. Get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.